what questions did you ask on this call? Okay, how did you explain the value of this product? Okay, the client said it was too expensive. How did you combat that? And how are you consultated in combating that as well? And what you usually find is that there is something in the fundamentals that they didn't do. And this reminds me of, there's that Michael Jordan documentary where in that first scene, I forget who it was, was describing Michael Jordan. And he said two adjectives about Michael Jordan. And then he said his fundamentals. So it was something like his skills, his expertise, his fundamentals. It's like, there it is. The start of a documentary about the greatest basketball player of all time in the first scene is somebody who is talking about his fundamentals, best basketball player of all time. So almost always going back to the fundamentals is key instead of, oh, what's like this out of the box idea that we could bring to the table? Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, bringing forth the new wave of rising leadership and helping leaders find purpose, connection, and results. This is your host, founder of Alluviance, Alex Kremer. What is up and welcome back to the Rising Leader Podcast. This is your host, Alex Kremer. And if this is your first time being on the show, welcome to the show. We're about to absolutely have a phenomenal time here. So we have an awesome guest for us today, a gentleman named Ross Shinnick. So first off, Ross, what up, bro? Good to see you. Alex, great to see you, man. How you doing? <laughs> I am doing good, man. I am doing good. We're on a four-day weekend here, so I am just enjoying some beautiful rays here in New York City. And now I get to have a great conversation around leadership and sales and meaning and culture with you. I mean, what could be a better Friday? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I've been passionate about leadership my whole life, and I know that you have as well. And I've been watching some of your videos, and I'm super impressed with some of the conversations you've been having. I think they're really productive and a lot of great takeaways that I've had personally. So I'm looking forward to helping with that. Hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. Well, let me give a little intro on you and you can kind of fill in the blank. So you are a senior director of sales at Indeed right now. And you have a strong history of being in sales, continued promotion, moving into leadership, having top teams. I believe you even majored in organizational community leadership, which we are going to for sure be diving into that. You live in the beautiful Austin, Texas. And listen, man, we got connected about a month or so ago from one of our good friends, Lauren. And I just know that right when we hop in the conversation, we kind of got right into like the art and the craft of leadership, the art and the craft of sales, the art and the craft of developing great culture. And just based on what you're saying, I was like, man, this guy's got some wisdom right here. So <laughs> let, let me just kind of turn it over to you first. Why don't you give like a little bit of a background in terms of who you are, where you're from, what's the spiel on who Ross Shinnick is? Yeah, I'll give you the quick background here. So my big thing is I've always been passionate about leadership. I think that's the central theme. I, as you said, majored in organizational community leadership in college. And I think I was so inspired by this because I think everybody in their lives have both good and bad leaders. And that can come in different forms as you grow up. And so I think one of the biggest forms is in school when we view teachers as leaders. And throughout my time, there's teachers that have been great and there were teachers that weren't so good. And Growing up, my grades weren't good. In elementary school and middle school and high school, I had a really hard time. And I felt some disconnect with some of the communication that was coming from my teachers. And so in high school, I switched to a private school where I did much better. And I had the privilege of going to a university at the University of Delaware, 
because of my bad grades growing up, I didn't want to continue down the path of constant test taking. So as funny as that sounds, I decided I could go into economics, I could go into marketing, but I decided to go into leadership. One, because I didn't have to take as many tests. But the other reason was because of how creative you get to be. And there were all these different classes about the philosophy of leadership and how to use creativity and leadership and design thinking and all these interesting things. And all of the projects and how we were graded were based on things that we actually had to do, things that we had to implement around campus and leadership retreats that we had to lead. And so it was a really good opportunity for me. And from there, when I went into sales about six and a half years ago, I knew that I wanted to pursue the director role because of my passion in leadership. And I think that really leadership's everywhere. We're in a constant state of leading others and being led. And you don't necessarily need the title to be a leader. I mean, even if you're just an older brother, an older sister, you're probably leading your siblings to some degree. Or if you're the leader of your friend group, you're always planning the trips, right? So you don't necessarily need a title to be a good leader. And I think how societies are formed and shaped are largely based on the leaders and their ability to cultivate that following. That's just a piece of it. That's part of why leadership is so interesting to me. So you ran leadership retreats in college. What's that like? Yeah, that was interesting. There was one where it was a community service trip. For example, one where we went to Tennessee and we actually met up with a few Indian tribes and we were responsible for doing things like helping build hiking trails and got to learn a lot about their culture. So, I mean, like you said, right, somewhat of a domino effect. When you're interested in something, it can generally lead to other interesting things. And so a lot of people thought it was funny that I was a leadership major at the time. But what ended up resulting, I think, were a lot of really cool adventures, one of them being that community service trip. Another one that was interesting was we had to do a project where we had to think of a change that we wanted to implement on campus. And then once we thought of the change we wanted to implement, we had to actually do it successfully or unsuccessfully. So one of the things that we wanted, our group, was to implement wireless printing in the library because it was so annoying to have to use the computer, the library owned ones to actually print paper. And that's the boring stuff. But the interesting stuff is we had to actually send emails to the decision makers and the people who worked at the library and the dean of academics all joined this meeting that we had to present and pitch. And we had to do a full breakdown of the cost of implementation and why it is that they may be hesitant. We were over overcoming objections in the meeting itself. I was 19 at the time. I was talking to people higher up at the college about why they should change something on campus. And I think that wired my brain to think in this way. And part of the reason I pursued sales and leadership in the future. In our previous conversation, you had talked about the pursuit of being great at sales was really in service to becoming a great leader and the opportunity to move into leadership. And you look at many CEOs, founders, you know, whatever it might be, a lot of them had a start in sales and learning how to build pipeline, how to close revenue, how to be client facing. There's the craft and the art of sales that personally I'm unbelievably passionate about. I love reading a good sales book, learning a new sales framework, learning just like insert product or service here. And I know that I've developed a methodology and a way to enroll somebody into a partnership with me. At least that's the goal here. And I also know that a good sales tactic and strategy is only as good if it's built upon a strong foundation of mental health, emotional health, spiritual health even, and also just wanting to do good and coming from a really powerful vibration or transmission, one can even say. So for yourself, on your path, I mean, from becoming a great sales professional, because there's a lot of people who listen to this show who are ICs today. 
who are account executives, SDRs, first-time even sales managers who are saying, hey, yeah, I want to become good at this so that one day I can then step into a great leadership position. Walk me through your mindset around that and your experience of how you use sales to get into leadership in general. Yeah, a lot of really good things to touch on there. So backing up a little bit. So even if there's some people listening to this who haven't even gone into any sort of profession yet or aren't currently happy in their current profession, I think the starting point is always to think of the end goal. So what is it that you want in 30 to 40 to 50 years? Or what is it that you want to achieve at the end of your career or the end of your lifetime? What does that end result look like when you're thinking about the future? Is it that you want to have a lot of money and be on a boat in Europe somewhere? Is it that you want to retire early with your wife or husband and settle down somewhere in the US? Is it that you want to climb the corporate ladder and work the rest of your life? So there's so many different options and scenarios that you think may be optimal for you. So think about that end goal and then stick to that. But when it comes to the starting point, just start somewhere. So for me, I didn't know what I wanted to go into. I knew that I wanted to be a leader one day where I was influencing a group of people towards a common goal. And I didn't know if I wanted that to be in sales or in anything else. But the fact is, you just have to take the next step. So if you don't know what you want to do, you will know what you want to do once you're in your first job. So if you go into a sales job, even not knowing that that's what you want to do for your whole life, you'll be able to make that determination only when you're in the job. So I think a lot of people don't take that first step because they think that they have to take the perfect step. So know what your end goal is, but then just be open-minded with what your first step is going to be. If you want to go into sales or marketing or plumbing or whatever you want, and then you're going to learn from there. Because if you go into sales and go, well, I really like the fact that I get to talk to clients, but I don't necessarily enjoy trying to get them to spend money with me. It's like, okay, well, maybe then a client success role is better for you. Or maybe a marketing role is better for you, where you're focused more on content and brand. Or let's say you go into a position where you realize that you really like the organization of it, but you don't really like the client-facing side. And you really just like the internal working with the internal systems and tools. Okay, well, maybe you should go into coding. Or maybe you'd be better as some sort of chief of staff where you're organizing different programs and events for somebody. But you can't come to the realization that you like or don't like something in the professional world if you don't just try something to begin with. Now, in the context of me, I got very lucky where I entered a sales role that I was very passionate about. And I think the reason I was passionate about it was for a few reasons. But one is, I think it tapped into a lot of insecurities that I had at a young age. There's a really good quote from The Sopranos that says, man or woman is driven in toto by his insecurities, which essentially means that what drives us in our lives are the things that we feel insecure about and feel inferior about. Growing up, I was a little bit shy and introverted, and I didn't come out of my shell until around my college years. And so I think those insecurities, when I got into sales, I saw that these people who were the best at it were very persuasive and outgoing, and which we'll get to don't necessarily mean that you're the best salesperson. But what I observed is they were very social and outgoing and persuasive. And that was something that I was insecure about not being my entire life. And so when I got into the position, I sort of put my foot down and I was like, okay, this is going to be the thing that I master. And that's when I started consuming a lot of sales books and really working on myself to try and build myself up and be seen as somebody who is great. Now that changed over time. I was driven by that initially. And then it sort of transferred into something a little bit more selfless around wanting to help other people. So when I started to get good at sales and understand how the process works and learn that I can be consistent and that it's scalable, I became really passionate about helping other people get good at it. And once I realized that, I knew that I should start pursuing a leadership route. That's kind of the background there in terms of why sales mattered for me and why I took any first step and it happened to be sales and it happened to work. 
And then there were a lot of things that I did that I think catalyzed being able to get promoted and become a leader early on, which we can touch on, but just to set the stage there. Yeah. I really like what you say of it was your insecurities that drove you. I don't know if you use the word insecurities, but it's like the parts that you said, hey, like I'm not good at this is what drove you to becoming great at something. And so often it's like people look at things that they're bad at. In my experience, I've looked at things that I'm bad at and be like, oh, let's just stay away from that because I'm just going to do something else. I always wanted to be a speaker. Like it's just been a big part of who I've been. And I used to watch my mom and my dad, who were both speakers, be on stage. And I remember in high school, I gave a speech and I was scared shitless, like voice quivering, like you know, just not saying the right things. And it was rough. And I was like, man, I'm terrified of this. Therefore, I'm going to find as many opportunities to put myself in a position to speak in front of people. In college, whenever we'd have a project and have to give a speech, I would always be volunteering myself. I'll be the first one to like intro us and to set the frame in addition to other things. Whenever there's opportunities at work, it was like, I'll step up. And it just became a thing. It's like, hey, I do hard things and stuff that I'm scared of. If I'm scared of it, it's almost like that is a concrete detail. That is a piece that I need to double click into. Because if I'm scared, that means I need to go that path right there. That's a mindset right there. And I think it just speaks very well to what you're saying of like, do the things that put you outside of your comfort zone that you know is in pursuit of what the long-term game or long-term vision actually is. Yeah, 100%. So well said. And just break that down a little bit more so that people don't get confused. It's not to say that you shouldn't play to your strengths, right? So it's good to understand the things that you're good at and then capitalize on those. But you don't want to not pursue your strengths because of things you're insecure about. So if you have the potential to be a good public speaker, or if you're very extroverted, but you get very nervous when you're public speaking, then that is something that you should try and uncover. And you should invest time to understand why that's happening and what techniques and strategies you can employ to get better at public speaking, because that's going to help you just professionally. And I think you're exactly right that you should do the things that scare you. And there's a lot of research on this now that shows that the things that scare you and move you out of your comfort zone is directly how you build your character. If you're always doing the same thing every day that you're comfortable with, and keep you within your comfort zone, then you're not going to be able to grow. And then somebody may ask, well, why does that matter? Why can't I just be comfortable every day? And the reason is because of time. Time is constantly moving, and we need to get better as time goes on. And you know, one thing I like to say, usually on my birthday, as this comes to mind, I have this revelation that time is only a cost. Because as time goes on, you get older and time gets limited. Every passing second, we get closer to the end, unfortunately. And so what are we exchanging for the time? We have to exchange experience and character. It's almost a trade-off. As time goes on, you want to get better at something or you want to do something that builds your character further because we're not in this constant state of everything being the same. Again, time is moving forward and the time as it goes on, you need to trade that off for something. And so what is that? And then you can find that for yourself. I think you want to find that a lot of different things to be good at, but it can really range. One is that you want to, of course, focus on your professional life and improve in that area. But you also want to be worldly. You want to work on things that may not even relate to your professional career. Maybe you want to do something in entertainment or do something in the arts or do something around writing and reading. And you want to continue to build yourself up 
And that will also make you more concentrated and focused when you're working on your professional career as well. So there's a lot to say on this topic, but I think just the thing you said about getting out of your comfort zone is huge. Yeah. One thing that I've found is a really helpful technique or way to hold yourself accountable is to make a commitment for a certain amount of time, to raise your hand if possible, and to make a commitment in front of a larger group of people or a community. And that commitment can come in the form of many things. I remember back in 2017, made a commitment to meditating for 365 days in a row at a retreat I was at down in Guatemala. And I did it because I raised my hand and I said it in front of 50 freaking people. And making a commitment to, hey, I'm going to go to the gym five times a week in front of a cohort and a community of people. Or making a commitment to prospecting every single day for an hour, whatever it might be. But when we make a commitment... And then we actually follow through in the commitment what the impact of that is. We start to build more trust with ourselves. We start to say, oh, I'm the type of person that when I say I'm going to do something, I actually follow through. I actually have a level of integrity, not just with other people, but more importantly with myself. And that is something that I think is fucking rare. Like not everybody can embody that trait, whether you want to call it discipline or integrity, whatever it is, but like to say, hey, I want to do this and to actually follow through. That's different right there. So I'm actually kind of curious from your end as well. Have you ever made any types of commitments that when you look back on, you're like, wow, when I raised my hand and said, I'm doing this and I followed through on it. Wow. That opened up so much. We're such a core foundation to who I am now. Yeah, well, there's an incredible amount of value in social contracts. So in the case of what you just said, where you were on this retreat in Guatemala and you made a commitment to meditate, everybody heard it. There's more friction to not doing it. It's almost like this added layer of commitment when you say it in front of other people. And we see this with people who try to break addiction. If you say to yourself and only yourself, okay, I'm going to quit cigarettes if you're addicted to cigarettes, but I'm just going to leave them in the drawer for later you know you're not really serious and you didn't tell anybody and you're probably going to end up smoking a cigarette in the near future. But if you say, you know what, I'm putting my foot down, I'm done. You throw the cigarettes out. You tell your friends and family, that's it. I've been smoking cigarettes for five years and now I'm done. That's when you know you're serious. And that sort of reveals this weird duality, not to get too philosophical, but this weird duality of the self where you want to constantly improve the relationship with you. And one of the best ways to do that is just to observe your own behavior. How is it possible that I tell myself I want to quit cigarettes, but then I find myself 15 minutes later smoking a cigarette? So that shows that there's sometimes this disconnect between what you're thinking and what you end up doing. And I think people who thrive personally and professionally are really good at aligning those two things. And so tying this back to personal commitments, one of the best ways to do that is making it a social contract, which is to say that I'm going to tell everybody in my network that I'm going to do this thing. And that will hold yourself accountable to it. And that will align what you're saying you're going to do with what you will do. That's powerful. Yeah, the social contracts is truly where it is at. You were in sales for five years and then you've moved into leadership and now you're on your way. You're now a second line leader. What are some of the things that you hold yourself accountable to as a leader to be really bringing forth what it is you're trying to or what's the type of values and accountability standards that you keep yourself being held to and also that you hold the people that you lead accountable to to raise everybody up. Nice. Yeah, this is really good. So a couple of directions we could go with this, but I'll say that there's five core things that 
I hold people accountable to, but also myself. And if you're a leader, if you're listening to this and you're a leader at a company, we could do this comparison and see how this relates to what you have on this topic. I'll go through the five quickly, but the first one is just effective communication. And I think that this is the number one because it sounds very simple, but it's often not executed properly. Where a lot of times as leaders, it's easy to over-talk or speak too fast or not give emphasis in the right moments. And we oftentimes don't repeat things that are important enough. But the reality is the people that are under us have a lot going on and naturally they're going to overcomplicate things. And if we don't effectively communicate, then we're essentially leaving it up to them to understand what their roles and responsibilities are. So effective communication is the key to making sure that our teams understand what it is that's being expected of us and what we're giving more importance to. The second thing is simplifying process. This goes along with the first one a little bit too. The reality is employees always find ways to make things more complicated, whether it's from a process standpoint or from a psychological standpoint. From a process standpoint, you may have those people on your team who are constantly asking unrelated questions that are unrelated to the goal. We're asking questions about systems or tools or initiative that you haven't talked about in a while. And on the psychological front, a lot of employees can get in their own head. They may feel like they're not good enough. They may feel like they can't contribute properly to the team. There may be something going on in their personal life that they haven't given their full effort as much as they could or should. So when we simplify process, we make all of this easier and we make their job easier, easier to accomplish, but also create an environment where they understand what the expectations are. And again, our job is to simplify, not overcomplicate. And so when we're communicating, it's important to just focus on the core fundamentals when we're talking to them. And then a third is consistent messaging and consistent presence. So consistent messaging, meaning you don't want there to be, you know, we call this at my current company, you know, flavor of the day is something that you want to avoid, right? Where the leader comes in with constantly something very different to focus on. So in the context of sales, it could be, okay, let's all focus on clients within the trucking industry, because that's where we can get the most revenue. And then the next week, we're like, well, you know what? That was great. But now let's focus on clients who are in the plumbing industry, or the sales industry, or the marketing industry. And so it's confusing people. They're like, wait a minute. Well, you just said, I thought this was the thing that was important. And then it erodes the credibility because the next thing you know, they don't believe that the things you're saying are important anymore because they know that they're always changing. So the more consistent your messaging, the more credibility you have, the more aligned everyone will be on the goals. This episode is brought to you by Alluvians. Alluvians is helping sales professionals and sales leaders master the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. Last year, we threw over four retreats and helped over 150 tech sales professionals, leaders, and founders. And next, we got it going on May 3rd through 5th in the beautiful Austin, Texas area. So make sure you apply to alluvians.co to check it out for more. I want to double click onto that one real quick because that one is so profound. And I think that this is valuable for everybody, whether you're a leader or not, and also just like leading yourself. What's the actual thing you're trying to do? What's the mantra? And I used to have an old leader who say, hey, in leadership, clear is kind, clear is kind. I was guilty of, hey, every Tuesday team meeting, we're going to have a new sales tip and I'm going to talk about a cool new thing. And while it could feel really cool at the time and there could be a high of, oh, I can't wait to implement this. If it's every single week, it starts to get drowned out. It starts to lose the energy of it. But I remember one of the first things, his name was David Rubenstein. He came in to outreach and he became the VP of sales of the East Coast. 
And the first thing he implemented in all of our deal reviews and looking at deal strategy was asking the simple question of, what's the problem we're trying to solve? What's the problem we're trying to solve for the client? And it wasn't, do we have the right people involved? What are the next steps? Do we have a mutual action plan? It's, what's the problem we're trying to solve for? And he, every single freaking deal review would ask that question. And it kind of got to the point where I just like roll my eyes. I'm like, DR, like, do we seriously have to still talk about this? But it ingrained it into my head and my team's head so much that, oh, yeah, the first thing that we need to figure out is what's the problem we're trying to solve for. And that came through in how we spoke with the prospect and the customer. And when we knew that, hey, our skip level or your 2x skip level is going to be coming into a deal review and the first question he's going to ask is what's the problem we're trying to solve for, you better have a good fucking answer. <laughs> because if you don't have a good answer, I mean, that's going to show that you lack a certain amount of credibility or understanding the deal. And so that's just something I really want to double click on of like a consistent one thing, a one mantra, a clear is kind and don't have a new flavor of the week right there. So good, man. 100%. Also, from a leadership perspective, it becomes more tempting to do this when you may be underperforming. So if you're leading a team that isn't pacing to quota, or you're in a totally different department, and you're not on track to meet whatever goals you have, it's natural for people to want to think of outside the box ideas or new ideas that they think can contribute to meeting to that goal. This is a trap. Usually what the best strategy is in these situations is to double down on the fundamentals that you know already work. So let's say, for example, in a sales position, you know, I'll go the director of sales route for a second. With my team, we used to talk a lot about the importance of asking good questions, the importance of adding value during your pitch, and then the importance of handling objections when the client may give you pushback. So we would just hone in on those three. There were more, but we would hone in on those three. And if an AE or a sales rep wasn't performing well, I wouldn't be coming back saying, well, let's try this fourth thing then. Have you tried pairing this product with that product? And maybe that will resonate. We'd go back to the calls and we would assess and say, okay, what questions did you ask on this call? Okay. How did you explain the value of this product? Okay. The client said it was too expensive. How did you combat that? And how are you consultated in combating that as well? And what you usually find is that there was something in the fundamentals that they didn't do. And this reminds me of, there's that Michael Jordan documentary where in that first scene, I forget who it was, was describing Michael Jordan. And he said two adjectives about Michael Jordan. And then he said his fundamentals. So it was something like his skills, his expertise, his fundamentals. It's like, there it is. The start of a documentary about the greatest basketball player of all time in the first scene is somebody who is talking about his fundamentals, best basketball player of all time. So almost always going back to the fundamentals is key instead of, oh, what's like this out-of-the-box idea that we could bring to the table? Mm, Hell yeah. You were kind of talking through the three main things in terms of holding your team accountable. I think you had two more. Do you want to finish off with those final two? Or Yeah. So in my position, just for background as well, it's a senior manager role. So I have managers that are underneath me and they're leading teams. So what I'm holding the managers accountable to, and there's a version of this for the reps as well. But so the final two, one of them is personalized coaching. It's a little bit paradoxical. You want your team to be rowing in the same direction and aligned and forward thinking on the goal. Paradoxically, the way you do this is personalized coaching and working with each individual one-on-one to better understand what motivates them, what their goals are inside and outside of the job. And everybody is motivated and coached differently for them to see success. Some people are very reserved and shy and introverted and 
that takes a totally separate approach than somebody who's, let's say, extroverted and very outgoing and gregarious. And so a term that I like to use with my teams is root cause. You want to understand the root cause of what's preventing somebody from being successful and not just look at the problem. So I think it's good to dive into this for a second. So this is applicable to any job. There's a problem and then there's a root cause. The problem is what the issue is at surface level and how you identify that there's an issue to begin with. And the root cause is why it's happening. So I'll just give context because I'm in sales. Let's say that four out of the eight members of your team have not been meeting expectations for setting meetings. Now, that could be the problem and everybody shares that same problem. However, the root cause might be different, right? For one person, it might be that they're not motivated and there's something going on outside of work and it's preventing their motivation during their job. For a second person, it could be that what they're saying on the phone is too abrasive and that they have to take a step back and really reconsider the language that they use when they're talking to clients. For a third person, it could be that they're not talking to the right person. They need to be talking to more of a decision maker. So anytime you see a problem that's a trend within your team, don't be so quick to just address it at the team level. It's critical to dive in to each individual person underneath you and look at why it is specifically that they may be underperforming in that area. And that is how you can get people rowing in the same direction. And the reason it's paradoxical is because you would think that if you wanted to get everybody aligned, you would just have to talk at the team level all the time and just motivate people and get them riled up and ready to go. But it isn't the case. The way you get everybody aligned with the team is that you show them that you have a personal interest in their success. And you can only do that by personalized coaching. And then the final one's accountability, which is making sure that you're holding people accountable to the expectations and goals. So those are the five. Getting to know people individually is so valuable there. I mean, when I would roll out key things on my team, there's always the few leaders on the team. The individual contributors who are the leaders who have an outspoken voice, when they give their approval, people listen to them. And what I will often do before I roll out a big thing around, let's say, hey, we're implementing account plans for our sales team. We're implementing a new prospecting methodology. We're implementing, you know, going after a new target market, whatever it might be. I'll make sure I plant the seed with the individuals on my team who are that leadership team lead type of perspective. First off, speaking to what you were talking about, it's like the way that I make them into team leaders, I invest in them and I know what's really important to them. And I want their voice to be developed, their leadership to be developed so that they have the opportunity to grow into those roles. But I also know that, listen, this is a partnership. If you choose to invest into me, into the mission of this team, I'm going to in turn want to invest into you and also open up opportunities. It's not like I'm telling you what to do because I'm the freaking manager. It's like, no, we are in a true partnership right here. But what I'll say then is, you know, once I got them on board, say, hey, we're rolling out this new prospecting methodology, hypothetically, on Tuesday team meeting, I would love when I open it up for questions for you to raise your hands, be like, hey, I think this is going to be great. And here's why. Here's how I'm thinking about it. Because oftentimes, it's not about what the leader says. Everybody's like, wow, I love our leaders. It's going to be good. It's the first person to follow that's actually the true leader right there. The second person to follow that then follows up. That's like, oh, okay, I guess we're all on board with this. Okay, okay. And so I think that's well on that fourth point right there of investing into your people to support your cause as well. Yeah, absolutely. So question for you, I mean, how do you identify that person? Is it just somebody who naturally finds you more credible or is more aligned with your vision as a team? Or is it somebody that you sort of identify and work with a little bit more closely? Mm, good question. And I'm the one who's asking the questions on this podcast. I, you know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You know, 
I would actually love to know what your perspective on this is too, because it's like there's certain people you just feel a resonance to, and there are certain people that you're like, man, you could really be something. It's not part of my vision per se. It's just like, man, I want to see what your peak true self leadership looks like, comes in the form of flavor is like, I want to invest in you. And usually that's the people who are hungry to learn and to get better, who are seeking feedback and also receiving the feedback and bringing a greater level of curiosity when you're bringing the feedback. People who have a really powerful vision or at least have a zest to want to work on their vision or want to gain clarity on what they're trying to do. And also it's the people from my perspective, who believe in something greater than just themselves. Yes, they're down to make a shit ton of money and try to you know, ensure that they are getting their own needs met. But it's like, yeah, that's a byproduct of me serving something greater. And when people can show those types of qualities right there, I'm more just like you, I want to put you in a spot where you can flourish right there. And so I'd actually be curious too, back to you of like, what do you look for when you are trying to invest into leaders and, and to top performers? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a hard question. I think it depends on different situations and scenarios. I will say just on the topic of implementing change, there's a few things to keep in mind. I think the biggest one and one of the areas that people struggle is it needs to be tied to the end goal. So obviously in sales, it would be achieving quota, but in marketing, it could be acquiring a certain number of clients or whatever it may be. So think about your own profession here. In the context of sales, it would be achieving quota. So anything that you implement or try to get the team on board for, it's important to understand why it's being implemented and how it's being associated and tied to the end goal. We lose sight of that very easily, I think, as managers and leaders. It's easy to fall into the other thinking, the wrong thinking, because we feel that that's our job. And that's their job. Our job is to tell them what they need to do. And then their job is to do what they need to do. And then at the end of the day, we'll evaluate their performance based on how well they followed those instructions. It's not the case. And if you're a leader who has struggled, you'll probably find that people don't do things if they don't want to. And it sometimes can be difficult to get them to see it a different way. And in my opinion, the number one thing that those leaders are not doing is they're not tying it to the end goal and why it matters for them. And even if it's not directly tied to the goal, you still want to tell the story of how at the end of the day, it's going to help them get there. Even if it's more than obvious, even if it's something they should know, still the fact that you're vocalizing it is going to go a really long way. I mean, I relate that to sales. Even though we're leading, we're selling people into what we're trying to do of like, if I'm working on an opportunity and I'm not tying a capability, a new framework that our company is providing to what their main goal is and attaching it to, hey, this is going to help you with this key executive priority that you talked to me about, even if it's obvious, Like it's not first assuming that they're connecting what is the clear dots for you, but it's more just like the question in itself is so important. So for example, if I'm talking to somebody about a new capability or new process that we're rolling out and I'm saying all the benefits of this myself, I'm going to hopefully remember to ask the question of like, hey, you know, Mr. Mrs. Prospect or person on my team, I want to ask you a question and it might seem like a pretty obvious question But I think you making your mouth articulate the words is actually more important than anything. What's the impact of this? And why is this important to you? It's just like causing them to just be like, what is really important? What is truly the impact? Even if it's obvious. Because when we can start to make our mouth articulate the words 
of what we are feeling, that in itself is a first step towards moving closer to and starting to manifest it within our world. Absolutely. Yeah. A couple of things I'll add to that because now I'm just in full thought around this topic because I think it's so critical. So one is that, I mean, not only will sometimes they not be aligned to achieve the specific goal you set out to do or whatever change you want them to engage in, this can sometimes be the starting point of a snowball into a bad manager-employee relationship. Because what tends to happen is the manager will try and implement something and then the employee won't follow through with it. The manager will get upset that the employee is not following through with it. And then they'll start treating that employee differently. And then by treating the employee differently, now the employee has some conflict with the manager and this will continue to escalate as new things need to happen. And a lot of times this happens because managers have the ego. And once you get into a manager position, you got to drop the ego, right? You probably got to where you were because you were amazing at your job. You were the best at what you did. And now you're in that position. So of course, in the context of sales as well. But now it's not about you. Now it's not about you achieving your goals, although that's important. It's about making sure the people that work for you are successful and fulfilled and finding purpose and working on things that are applicable to their own skill sets. And so when we try to put something in place and it doesn't follow through, the question is not, how could this person not listen to me? It's what didn't I communicate correctly? Or what hesitations do they have that may be right, by the way? Or how can I work with them more closely to ensure that in the future, I'll get more buy-in from this person? And there's a really good concept, the, the emotional piggy bank, or the concept of this bank account where you constantly want to be inputting deposits in the employee bank account with positive reinforcement and skill development and working with them to ensure that they're feeling fulfilled in the role. That way, when you need to get them to do things, like when you're rolling out a new initiative or try something different, or you need to get something done for upper management and you need their help, they're going to be willing to do that for you because now you have their credibility and they realize that you have their best interests in mind. So the underpinnings of good leadership and management is to focus on the person and build them up. That way, when you need to hit the ground running and motivate them and get them moving to achieve your own goals, they're going to be right there next to you. Where did you learn all of the stuff that you know about leadership? Is this just through your own personal experience? Is this through coaches? Is this through books? I'm curious how, because you're speaking very well about this topic and also there's deep knowledge within it. Where have you gathered this from? Is it maybe you actually had a previous lifetime where you were a leadership, (laughs) a higher level leader or something like that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for the compliment. I read a ton when I was in the sales role. I read some on this topic and You know, it was part of my major and we learned some of these things. My favorite book is The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle, which talks about the secrets of highly successful groups. And his thesis is that there are three constant qualities that make up a strong team and that it's applicable regardless of the team. So he looked at the San Antonio Spurs and he looked at not the CIA, but some other government agency that worked really well and all these completely unrelated groups and teams. And he found that there were three. The three are safety, vulnerability, and purpose, which we can touch on. But those are the three. Other than that, I've read some others. I've read Sales Management Simplified. That's, I think, the most popular sales management book. But ultimately, I think it just came from experience and getting feedback from people and being able to be in the role. And I think I'm just incredibly passionate about the art of leading a team towards a common goal. I'm not really sure where I learned it. I think I live and breathe it every day. And I'm constantly talking to people about it. So being able to communicate this 
And I just think the implications of good leaders is so huge. I mean, you look at some of the bad leaders in the world right now, and you realize the impact that they have. I think a lot of it comes down to decision-making. I mean, the, the higher up in a leadership role you go, the more influential your decision-making is. So I've also done a lot of work in meditation where, like you, my New Year's resolution in 2021 was to meditate every day. And that's what I did. Taking on a leadership role where I'm mindful has really helped. Time back to your question, because it's allowed me to be really introspective about why it is that the things I do work and why it is the things that I say resonate. I mean, we can have a whole conversation about that, of course, but I mean, that's just some content for that question. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, dude, we need to sit on a beach somewhere and get a podcast set up and we could just have a conversation for like five hours on the art of leadership, man. I got one more question here for you, Ross, before we hop, but before we do, I just want to acknowledge you, brother. You have a wealth of information around leadership and, and your personal path for doing that. And I can already tell that your team is unbelievably lucky to have you. I'm excited just to continue to be in relationship with you and witness you continue to find your voice and make an impact on this world. So here's my final question for you, man. This show is called The Rising Leader Podcast. What do you view as the rising leader? I view the rising leader as somebody who has a growth mindset. And I think this is important because you constantly want to question what it is you think are limitations in your life and problem solve and strategize how you can overcome those. So just going back to my example, I used to have a huge fear of public speaking. And if we go way back, it didn't come naturally to me to be extremely social and or extroverted or anything like that. And so being able to push the limits of that and continue to work hard and realize that you can achieve the limitations of yourself are exactly what you think the limitations are. And you can continue to push the envelope there. I mean, you could really experiment with this by thinking of things that you're not good at at all and give that thing 100% of your effort, maybe 80% of your time, but most of your effort. And what you'll find is you'll make an incredible amount of progress. Evolutionarily, we are creatures that are able to learn and grow and adapt. And that's how we've gotten here today. Back in the caveman days, we had to figure out how to overcome these large animals in the wilderness and in the forest. And so we started creating rocks attached to spears and started throwing these at these animals. That came from having a growth mindset. I mean, no caveman thought that they were capable until they tried to make some weapon that could overcome a giant beast or another animal. So it, we're hardwired to have hesitations about our own potential, but yet it's in our blood to figure out and problem solve how we can improve in those areas. And so I think the Rising Leader podcast is great. And what it means to be a rising leader is somebody who can consistently realize that you should push back the goalposts, recognize your wins, but also have that growth mindset to try and achieve more. Boom. Hell yeah. I love that, man. Thank you. Well, that sums up this conversation very much so too. Ross, man, what is the best way if people want to get a hold of you, to follow you, engage with you, talk to you, and, and learn from you? LinkedIn's great. Ross Shinnick on LinkedIn. And if anyone wants to chat about this, I'm always open to having these conversations about leadership, sales leadership, growth mindset, being resilient, problem solving. These are all huge passions of mine. So reach out to me on LinkedIn. Oh yeah, brother. Well, thank you so much, Ross, for being on the show and for all the listeners who tuned in. Thank you as always and have a very alluvient filled day. Thanks for listening to the Rising Leader Podcast. Make sure you hit that follow button so you get notified every time a new episode releases. If you know someone who wants to take their lives and their career to the next level, send them this episode so we can all rise together. For more information, check out alluvians.co. We'll see you next time. And in the meantime, keep letting it flow.
This episode is brought to you by Alluviance. Alluviance is helping sales professionals, sales leaders, and founders master the craft of sales by transforming the inner game. And in the past 12 months, we've thrown four retreats and impacted over 100 tech sales leaders, founders on not just getting better at the craft, but really working on the inner game, gaining clarity on their vision, and also overcoming what's holding them back. The best part is you'll be doing it in an incredible community of high performers who are also trying to do the exact same thing. Our next immersion is going to be this May 3rd through 5th in the beautiful Austin, Texas. And make sure you check out alluvians.co to apply there. Can't wait to see you.